everyone. This is Rachel. And before we get into this fascinating discussion with Cha Ramos, I want to do a brief errors correction here right at the beginning and just say that, unfortunately, I pronounce Cha's name wrong throughout the entire episode. Her last name should be pronounced Ramos and not Ramos. So, Please enjoy this episode with Cha Ramos, where we talk about some really exciting things about combat. Cha has a website at www.callmecha.com. That's spelled C-A-L-L-M-E-C-H-A dot com. She is a movement designer, performer, dramaturg, wordsmith, and instructor, and oh so much more, as you are about to learn. I am here with Cha Ramos. Cha and I had a wonderful discussion about boundaries, which you may or may not have heard. And Cha is going to be part of our our scene summaries for those parts of Twelfth Night that include a duel. And so you may or may not have heard that already. So if if you wanted more when you heard from that, then this is the podcast for you. If you listen to this and want to hear more of it, then listen to the uh, act three scenes where Cha is a featured guest. Okay, so let's start off with what brought you into your interest in combat, both stage combat, like what pulled you down that rabbit hole? Because it's quite the rabbit hole. Oh, and it gets deep. Uh, <laughs> it's, you know, it started because I've I've been an actor I mean, I could say for my whole life, but professionally, um, I've been an actor since I was, you know, 20, 21. And I went to acting school for a, a year. I went to the Lee Strasberg Institute. And I had also been a dancer my whole life. And we had a movement requirement. And I wasn't going to take dance because I've been a dancer my whole life. And so I took stage combat. Um, and the instructor was Jay Allen Suddeth, who is brilliant. And I took to it like a fish to water and I loved everything about it. I loved the physical storytelling. I loved the historical aspects of it. I loved everything about it. And he was a great mentor because he saw that and said, you should continue. And so I just found (laughs) every class I could uh, and have been training and then doing my own sort of teaching and choreographing for the past gosh, almost almost a decade of a training uh, and about five to seven years of teaching and choreographing. I, I have a couple of follow-up questions on that. One Wait. is, how powerful is it to have a teacher like that just say those few tiny little words? It was unreal. It was one of those moments, especially as a young actor, as a young acting woman to have an older man who is truly, you know, a Broadway fight director, an expert in the field, has literally written the book. He has a book on fight direction that's quite fantastic. Just casually say to you, you have something. This is for you. I see your passion. I see your talent. Go after it. I mean, it's life-changing. It's truly life-changing. And, and, you know, it's, it's one of those things that I think as a performer, it's now become a bit of a calling card for me 
because I think early on in, in my career as a performer, it did set me apart. I did have this other thing. And so the, you know, the amount of sword wielding women that I have played or gotten to audition for is just fantastic. And I would never want it any other way. Oh my gosh. What, what an excellent point. And so how many people who go into sword fighting do you think have a dancing background? Quite a few. I, mm-hmm. I think thinking about uh, st- stage combat, especially because it is choreographed, mm-hmm. thinking about it as a dance, a partnered dance, I think is very helpful because similar to partner dancing, it is about listening to the other's person's body. It is about nonverbal communication. It is about, you know, being ready for just about anything that your partner could send your way, even when it's choreographed, because things happen and theater is live. And so I think a lot of dancers have that already and are already, you know, prepared to listen to each other's bodies in that way. So I think a lot, but there's also a lot of people who come from martial arts Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of people who come from a, a variety of of sort of movement backgrounds, and then some who have started in stage combat and have just found just their stuck with it that way all yeah. along. And you know, we clearly we all have different amounts of aptitude that that we are born with in certain things. And I have to say that I was not the most coordinated dancer in the world. I was certainly very enthusiastic. But there was something about sword play that for me was different. And I think part of it was having that prop, having that sword, whether it's a stick, you know, or a a Nerf wand, whatever is your quote unquote sword, I, I think can help even people who are somewhat uncoordinated as I am to really embrace this field. So, you know, if you're somewhere and you're interested in learning stage combat or fencing, don't worry about it if you're a bit of a klutz. I think that lots of us can overcome that. All that said, (laughs) there's no question that the few dance classes that I struggled through helped. They helped a great deal. And everything that I did with my body in terms of like yoga and even just walking and being aware of your posture and all of that, phenomenally helpful, no matter what kind of physical thing you're doing. How did studying stage combat, how did that make you more aware of your body than you already were? I think a lot of it has to do with, for me, when I'm fighting, because I'm thinking about so many things at once, I sort of let go of my self-consciousness about my body, right? So as a curvier woman, as a Latina woman, as an actor who doesn't know what to do with their hands, you know, all of those things tended to make me a very self-conscious actor physically. I felt like I took up too much space on stage constantly. And something about, especially sword fighting, but really every, every style of stage combat, but especially sword work, because there's so many variables. And when you start to get into like rapier and companion, you know, rapier and dagger, mm-hmm. rapier and buckler, there's so many variables that you just... You sort of can't. You don't have the mental space 
to worry about yourself so much. And so it allowed me to find that space in myself, even when I don't have a sword in my hand and sort of let go of the self-consciousness of what my body is doing and let it do what is natural and what, and what is a response to my partner on stage. Again, I, I think, you know, thinking about every dialogue as a sword fight, as a response, as a, like a constant sort of waiting and shifting of different rhetorical strategies helps me just live in my body in a more natural way. So it sounds like you're, you're able to trust yourself more that you understand your personal boundaries better and can move through the world. It reminds me of like it, if you've been driving one size car for a while and then you suddenly start driving like a bigger truck or a van or something, there's always this sort of adjustment period where you figure out where your physical limits are. And this sounds very much like that kind of process where one day you wake up and you can parallel park and you're okay with that. (laughs) You know, uh, there's a, there's a stage combat teacher who's based in Canada. Um, who her name is Siobhan Richardson. She's brilliant. And she talks a lot about how when you first put a sword in a student's hand or in an actor's hand, and they sort of like swing it around and play with it, that that's actually a very important part of the process because it's you, your body kinesthetically becoming aware of this new extension of it. The sword is just an extension of your arm. And as you wave it through space and feel the weight of it and play with it a little, it, your body actually registers it as part of itself. And so it's very similar to that, that car feeling where you're like, now I just know where I am in space. There's, there's a term for it called proprioception. That's mm-hmm. just the body's sense of itself in space. And when you, it's like having a, a bag or a backpack that you wear every day. And one day you walk out without it and you just feel it. You feel that it is a missing part of you. And so when you wield a sword and you get used to it and it becomes a part of your body, it, it really does become like second nature. And then when, you're, when you let go of the sword, your body remembers it. It has, it has like a, an actual physical memory of it um, that I just find, I find fascinating and so useful for any actor because we, we are all movers ultimately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you ever watched the show Slings and Arrows? I have not. Oh, my gosh. Well, <laughs> run. Do not walk to the other side of your, your pandemic room there. And <laughs> Fantastic. I will. When you get a chance, watch it. It comes in three different series. Uh, and unfortunately, there's only three. Mm. I think the first one is, uh, oh, gosh, I, I, Midsummer Night's Dream or something. Anyway, um, there's one that does Macbeth. I think it's the second in the series. And I I don't want to blow it. You know, I I don't want to spoil it. But there is a scene where an actor who has had very little combat training is suddenly in a situation where they're in a sword fight. And they're supposed to win the sword fight. And you can... you know, because this is a show about a Shakespeare troupe, you know, it comes right in and it's 
not interested so much in the script, although you get chunks of that as the experiences of the actors going through it. And you get to hear the actor who is playing the smaller part, desperately coaching the other actor in how not to kill him (laughs) while they're on stage. (laughs) Okay, swing to the right. Oh, not that far. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. All right. That's good. I'm dead. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. Um, So everybody, if you have not watched Slings and Arrows, please watch Slings and Arrows. Especially if you ever had any any fantasies or delusions about starting your own Shakespeare company, <laughs> which is something else I recommend highly. Everyone try if they have the urge. Uh, as as one person uh, put it to me, oh, heck, any fool can start a Shakespeare company. And it's absolutely true. But let me tell you, being a fool is hard work as any Anyone who's played Festy or Touchstone or, or heaven for fan, poor Lear's fool will tell you. Uh, but it's a tremendous amount of fun. Okay, so uh, putting aside for now all of those very relevantly actorly concerns about doing stage combat and everything else. And uh, before I let that subject go completely, though, I want to make very clear that Stage combat is dangerous. And please, please never use a real sword, never use a metal sword, no matter how dull, uh, unless you have a trained fight choreographer training you. Just don't do it. Uh, As Cha says, you know, swing it around your head in a big space if you want to, but. do not try this at home. I have an actor who, in a production that was not mine, had to go to surgery because the the doofus playing, I guess it was Tybalt, uh, punctured his intestine. The yeah, sword it- went too far. And you know, he could have died from septic poisoning. And there's just no excuse for this, people. You know, if you go to a Renaissance fair and you see people fighting with swords and it looks like fun and it looks like they're just drunk and messing around, they're not. They're not. They've had training. They know what they're doing. Because if they didn't, they're in the hospital or injured or nobody will let them on the battlefield anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's truly, it is It is truly wild to me um, how, how much people take for granted the training and safety around these tools. They are tools, right? They are tools, especially ones that are made of metal. You know, obviously, even with, I don't know any trained fight director or choreographer who would ever do this, but even with one on your staff, never use anything sharp. People do. It's wild to me. You just don't have sharps on stage. Don't have sharps on stage. But it, but it, it really is exacerbating as someone who does this professionally. If you love it, if you think it's beautiful, if you think it's essential to your story, hire a professional because they will know not only how to take care of you and your actors, but they will know how to tell a story, which I think is really what we're going to get into today with the fencing styles is a lot of professional fight directors, I would say most, are excited about this information, have a lot of this information, are interested in incorporating storytelling into your production and they know how to keep your actors safe 
So just hire us. We know what we're doing. If you love it, hire a professional. Absolutely. And I want to point out that I was clueless about this. I thought if I handed rubber daggers to my actors, that that was enough, that that was all the safety precautions I needed. And fortunately, I had actors who said, are you out of your mind, Rachel? Don't do this. And I'm like, oh, yes, I guess I was. And no, let's look into this. And not everybody has the money to hire a professional fight choreographer. But if you are a community theater doing Shakespeare and you're not making any money, nobody's making any money, by all means, just ask around, ask the community. And truly, something I've done a lot is if a theater reaches out to me and can't, you know, meet my price point or I, I don't have the availability, I'll talk to someone who's an assistant or a student or an actor I've worked with who's just a little bit less along in their path than I am, but perfectly suited to do whatever it is the theater is asking. So th- people will absolutely work with you. Definitely, definitely reach out. Mm-hmm. And, like you know, it's not that unusual to find a fight choreographer who can also be a stage manager. There's actually a lot of similarities. You need to be able to tell people what to do in a polite way and a firm way and make sure they do it. So, I was lucky enough to find a stage manager that was also a fight choreographer, and it was heaven. <laughs> it was absolutely also heaven. dramaturg slash fight choreographer. Oh yeah, more and more of us as time goes on, and yeah. it's a good combo. Good, good point. And get all three in one, people. <laughs> Why not? Why not? <laughs> okay, so here we are in Twelfth Night in the land of Illyria, but these dueling conventions would have applied to any play in Shakespeare's time. So let's talk for a minute about the different kinds of swords and what that means. So do you want to, there's basically two main kinds of swords that we're looking at with two very distinctive styles, right? So we've got swords and rapiers. Which do you feel like, you know, did swords have their own etiquette versus rapiers, or is it a similar cultural etiquette with different fight techniques? So something that's interesting that's going on in in this time is that, you know, swords are an expensive tool, and so you'd have one for many years. But in this time, the types of swords that are being used is changing rapidly. There's a lot more intersection of cultures. And so you're going to see on like the streets of Verona or the streets of London, a mix of what kinds of, you know, sidearms, what kinds of uh, blades people have on their body or have in their home. And so the rapier specifically comes mostly from either Italy or Spain. And so you're going to see the rapier sort of start to appear as there is Italian and Spanish immigration into England during the Renaissance. You're going to see some more sort of broadswordy type things in medieval England, but they're still going to kind of be around. You might even see more Eastern style weapons exist simultaneously. 
So the type of weapon that someone might use in a duel could vary across many different styles. How you would train in that weapon is different. So rapier style training is usually going to be Italian or Spanish. What you might also have is foils. Uh, so we think about sport fencing using, you know, foil, epe, saber. Foil fencing would have already existed in England and probably comes from the French, although there's some, you know, maybe there's English foil fencing that's true to, you know, England. But all of the styles of using each blade is specific to how the blade is constructed. So you're going to learn how to use a tool because of what that tool can do. Is it a little bit heavier? Is it a broader blade? Is it a narrower blade that could be snapped in half by a bigger, heavier sword? So the style of fencing is going to be different, but all of those blades might exist. And I think that's important to Twelfth Night specifically because if we're setting it in a more Turkish setting or if we're saying that Viola is, as Cesario, specifically a, a Turkish eunuch, what blade she has versus what blade Aguchik has, because it's, you know, Illyria is also a stand-in for London of the time. It's all going to depend on how you set the play. But very specifically, the dueling code most of the dueling codes from Shakespeare's time are Italian. So the sort of etiquette of how you use your blade are mostly going to be Italian. And, you know, the, the one that gets brought up in Twelfth Night is Saviolo's dueling code, which came out in 1595. And so you don't really see Shakespeare fuss much with dueling language until post the publication of this specific code. Oh. And there were like a couple before Saviolo, but Shakespeare doesn't really use the language until Saviolo's gets published. So there's a very good chance that either Shakespeare, you know, at least knew about Saviolo and had read his code, if not knew Saviolo personally. Uh, but, but the codes were mostly Italian. The code duello, there were multiple code duellos, but they were all sort of from Italy. And that explains Mercutio's speech in Romeo and Juliet about your, your pardonomies and this and that, or he's complaining about all these fancy, fancy swords people. All right, that's, that's fascinating. So would you have had a duel with, say, a, a, a scimitar against a rapier? You absolutely could. Really? <laughs> Yes. So part of the, what's interesting is, and this is going to, we'll, we'll probably get into the nitty gritty of this more later, but what's fascinating about a true gentleman's duel is that there are so many places where the duel could just not happen. <laughs> like the amount of places where it could just be both parties are satisfied the end mm -hmm. are just a million and one places. But there is a specific place along the sort of code where the two principals, as they were called, the two people who are actually going to fight, through their seconds, decide what weapons they'll be using. Usually, you would have said it's a standard weapon. So we're both using rapiers, or both using foils, or both using X. But 
there could absolutely be a version of this where you say, you know, a bladed weapon of a certain length and we're good, you know? Um, so it, it could be any number of things as long as both parties agreed. I see. So according to the code, everybody agrees on the weapons ahead of time. So um, walk me through this, if you will. I've, uh, somebody has insulted my cat's honor <laughs> and implied that she just lies around and can't catch any mice. This stings because it's true. <laughs> but I must defend her honor. How do I go about seeking a duel with this malaprop? So interestingly, and this is something, a lot of the information I'm talking about today uh, comes from this guy, Jared Kirby, who's brilliant, and he's sort of the editor and put her together of the modern translation of Saviolo's uh, sort of treatise on honorable duels. But I had a conversation with Jared Kirby about this exactly because I didn't understand the sort of order in which this happens. And there's something called giving the lie. So in your example, would, it would probably not lead to a duel, or at least Saviola would say it would not be an honorable duel. Because what actually has to happen for it to be a duel of honor is for me to call your cat a scoundrel and you to say, thou liest. Oh. That's giving the lie. Oh. Now, I, as an honorable noble person, because also there's a whole chapter in this book about the nobility of women, which is fascinating. So I won't even say gentlemen. I, as a gentle person, will not stand for being called a liar, and I issue the challenge. Now, if you didn't call me a liar, we wouldn't, it wouldn't be an honorable duel. If you were offended by my casually calling your cat a scoundrel, that's on you. You are a weak person, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) But if you named my statement of your cat being a scoundrel as a lie, that's when my honor is besmirched and I set the challenge. That is fascinating because when there's the kitchen scene and Malvolio is upsetting everyone by threatening to throw uh, Mariah and Toby and Festy out into the cold in the middle of winter. And Toby says, out of tune, sir, ye lie. So there he is actually challenging Mm -hmm. Malvolio to a duel right there. And that's what prompts Mariah to say, look, I've got a, I've got a plan. You know, don't go duel Malvolio. That's not going to turn out well for anyone. Yep. And Malvolio in that moment when he's accused of lying does nothing. He runs away. And so that's another cue to his lack of even spiritual fortitude. He's clearly a dishonorable person, right, at this point, because somebody called him a liar. Wow. Can, 
man, politics would be so fun right now if that was still true. Well, and that's why I find it fascinating because it truly does show, you know, if, if, if you were to call me a liar and I do nothing about it, like Malvolio, Malvolio does, mm-hmm. I'm a coward and I'm a scoundrel and I am not a gentleman because I did not stand up for my honor in that moment. So even though technically I'm the one issuing the challenge, you can start a duel by calling me a liar. Got it. So even though it's not about your cat's honor, got it. You can make it about your cat's honor by calling me a liar. Because then if I don't accept that, if I don't then lay down the gauntlet, I am not considered a gentle person. No. And then Malvolio is clearly not a gentle person. And that's the whole thing. He he aspires to be. Mm-hmm. He acts like he is. He tries to pretend that he's better than Toby. And without going, you know, too much into it, just wanting to be in a different life station in a different class in Elizabethan England was a sin because God put you there. And so it's basically a crime against God to wish that if you were nobility, then you you can't marry a commoner. That's going against God. If you are a peasant and you aspire to be a duke, you know, you're consigning your soul to hell. And Malvolio consistently condemns himself literally to an Elizabethan hell over and over during the play in ways that we do not recognize. And so when the eventual gulling happens where he's put in prison for being crazy and basically left with devils for company, he's only getting what he deserves in the Elizabethan mind. No Elizabethan would have been surprised to see Malvolio in trouble after he had consistently flouted God's will while sort of taking this high and mighty a better than you, holier than thou approach. Okay, so um, I I say, Madam, ye lie. My cat is as fair a cat as thou did ever see. <laughs> I love I I love this. I, we should write this scene. This is important. Sounds great. <laughs> that this exists in the world. <laughs> Uh, so then I would say, expect my challenge, right? Or something to that effect. Okay. Or I might actually throw a gauntlet on the floor. Fun. Uh, and okay. Then- and so a, a gauntlet, um, if you're unfamiliar with the term, is a glove. And it could be a metal glove. It could refer to a piece of armor or it could just refer to kind of a thick tough leather glove. Okay, so we throw down the gauntlet, which is where that phrase comes from. And um, you throw your glove at me. Mm -hmm. Um, Would it have been enough to bite your thumb at me? Would that have? uh... (laughs) Absolutely. A hundred percent. Basically, at that point, I could either be particularly gentle Mm -hmm. and just say, expect my challenge and leave the room. Mm -hmm. Or... I could do something offensive. Throwing the gauntlet is an offensive move. Okay. Uh, so it's, it, it is sort of the beginning of the challenge. It's saying, and so biting your thumb, similarly, offensive move saying it's on. So, and even an even more graphic and offensive move than just throwing the gauntlet, right? So 
the way that you responded might have an awful lot to do with who was watching, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're in the middle of court and you have a reputation for being very refined, for being very self-controlled, all of these tremendous virtues in an Elizabethan court. And then if you were to suddenly bite your thumb at someone, that would reflect very poorly on you at that point, right? Then at that point, the sympathies may shift to the other person if they behaved more decorously in that situation. It's also important to remember, I think, in terms of decorum, that again, all of these codes at this point, or most of them anyway, would have been Italian. And the common Englishman is is rather xenophobic at this time. And so they're not interested in these like fancy Italian ways but the gentle people are very Italian things, Italian culture mm. are seen as very high class. And so if you did something more base, you would be seen as lower class. Oh. But also it's why these Italian terms are used to such great comedic effect in Shakespeare, because your groundlings are going to find it hilarious that it's so hoity-toity and uppity. And it's why in, you know, you brought up Romeo and Juliet earlier, the two, the Italian masters, the English masters were seen as like brawlers, just street brawlers <laughs> who didn't know what they were doing. And to the English masters, the Italian masters were seen as these like flighty dancers who couldn't just get down to business. Mm-hmm. And so in that moment, you might also show yourself as being of one school or the other, or being of a mm. lower class or a higher class by how you interact in the moment of the lie being given. Fascinating. So if you are in a tavern and the person, you know, across from you is, is a local in the tavern, at that point, biting your thumb at them might be a show of strength. Yep. Rather than some sort of crudity or an admission that you weren't as skilled as the other person. It might just be more of, okay, sure, buddy. It's and on it, right now. Yeah. It, exactly. It might invite a tavern brawl, which mm-hmm. is not a duel. And maybe, no. you, right. Maybe you do want to get it over in that moment. Maybe it, you're not interested in, you know, picking seconds and finding a time and a place and choosing weapons. You just want to go at it. You might choose that response. Or maybe you even want to do something like start a tavern brawl and duck out. I mean, there's so many reasons why. (laughs) You know, people have all as many motivations to fight as they do anything else. And people have as many motivations not to fight. And I mean, there were situations that I did as a little kid to avoid bullies you know, that were basically kind of trickster maneuvers mm-hmm. because you, you do what you need to do in that situation. So, okay. So we have all these different possible etiquette scenarios that include class, include time, location, circumstances, all of that. Let's talk a little bit then, we'll, we'll narrow it down, where we have 
two people and they're ostensibly kind of the same class as we have with uh, Viola Cesario and Aggie Cheek, except that we know that Viola is nobility, but the the players do not. The characters do not. Mm-hmm. So how inappropriate is it for this duel even to be happening at all? So interestingly, so so much about the dueling codes is about maintaining your own honor. And so there are moments where if I call, called your cat a scoundrel and you said, yeah, she is, that's a perfect, perfectly honorable exchange. Mm-hmm. One of the way, and we've never gone to fighting and we haven't done any of the other dueling code things. We all go have a good thing of mead afterwards and and laugh about it. And we sing about my cat, the scoundrel. But that's not what happened. (laughs) No. And interestingly, one way that you could maintain your honor is if someone of a lower class, an obviously lower class, challenges you to a duel. Also a wide age difference. There's, There's a couple of different reasons. But you might say, it would besmirch my honor to even duel this person. Mm. It doesn't work the other way around. So what's interesting in Twelfth Night is because Cheek is issuing the challenge, a, a gentle person can issue a challenge to anyone. It just might make them look bad if they're issuing a challenge to someone of an obviously lower class than them. I think what's difficult in Twelfth Night and what was true of the time is that Cesario's position is nebulous. It's sort of hard to know exactly where Cesario falls on a, on a social stratus. So it's believable that Aguchik would consider Cesario of at least a somewhat equal social standing. Mm-hmm. But if we wanted to play it that Cesario is a servant and therefore much lower than a knight, then Aguchik is really undercutting himself by even challenging this person to a duel at all. Well, and from Aguchik's perspective, he is trying to woo Olivia, which she is blissfully unaware of. And clearly Viola Cesario has succeeded in wooing Olivia, even though they did not want to, that was not their goal. And so you can kind of see how Aguchik has notable cause to challenge this new usurper uh, and how he talks about challenging Malvolio. You know, he's ready to fight anybody for Olivia's hand. Uh, Bless his sincere and completely misguided little heart. So, okay, but, but going back to my cat... Madam, <laughs> the important matter at hand. Uh, we're at court. Uh, people are watching. We're of similar social standing. This is not the first time we've had an argument over something. Maybe we're longtime rivals. You know, you live in a small town, people rub up against each other the wrong way. People are watching. I say, Madam Yi Lai, what do you say? 
I would say if I was trying to maintain my honor, I would say expect my challenge and I would leave because after that point, you and I can have no contact or communication until the day of the duel. Once the lie has been given and like truly once the lie has been given, we're supposed to not speak anymore. So I might say expect a challenge and leave and from then on, we don't have contact. Wow. That's brilliant. I wish that. <laughs> Honestly, when you read these things, and, and in the book, Jared Kirby mentions this in the introduction that I find great, is he's like, I kind of wish we all knew this a little bit more in modern times. Because truly, when you, th- when you think about dueling, you think about like fighting to the death and swords and very few if any, were ever meant to be to the death. And most duels never happened because there's so many points at which the, the whole idea is that your fire be cooled, right? That, you, that brawlers mm-hmm. fight with fight and fire, duelists, fencers, let the fire be cooled and they're fighting for their honor. So you and I would have no more contact. We would choose our seconds and they would speak on our behalf so that there was no chance of us sort of igniting each other's anger. Fascinating. So now we're moving into divorce etiquette here. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Where two people have become estranged and one has put out a restraining order, basically, against the other one, and they're not supposed to talk. And so as seconds, they've hired lawyers or intermediaries of some kind. Okay, so now how do I choose my second? So you would want to choose someone, and again, this is going to get very fun as we think about Twelfth Night because (laughs) everything goes wrong. (laughs) Everything that can go wrong goes wrong, Uh, which is why knowing this stuff can make such a richer production of Twelfth Night because it's literally everything goes wrong. So as an honorable person, you would want to choose a second who you know to be cool-headed who you know to be logical and who you deeply trust to speak on your behalf so that they will never misconstrue anything that you said so that they will have your best interest at heart, but also that what they're ultimately seeking is satisfaction, which can be had by a word and not Mm -hmm. a deed so that you know that your second has your best interest at heart, will speak on your behalf truthfully, is cool headed and logical and will ultimately really be trying to seek satisfaction, which is some kind of compromise between the two parties. And ideally somebody who actually doesn't want a duel to happen. Exactly. And, and also you would have at least one second, but the average I think was up to three, if I remember wow. reading it correctly. So again, it was to sort of diffuse. It's all about diffusing the, the angry moment. So you're looking for a committee, basically, to yeah. to be your second. And, you know, then as now, people are complicated and difficult. And so I can imagine many situations where people trust somebody they shouldn't or, you know, whoever it is that was their second, their main second just didn't show up. Maybe they got hung over or had the stomach flu or something and didn't make it. And so I can see why you would want probably more than one. Okay, so I, 
I go and I find, uh, let's see, my brother-in-law, who, uh, you know, isn't necessarily always the most tactful person in the world, but it, but he's big. And he's clearly done a lot of fighting, and he tends to be somewhat reserved in his speech. So I've got him. Uh, I've got uh, somebody else. Um, she's... Uh, She's a good fighter, but she's also like just known for being incredibly charming and persuasive. And so I I throw her in there, and then I'm I'm looking around desperately for somebody else, and I find my cousin, who is kind of a brat, but who I know genuinely loves me and cares about me. Is that kind of a reasonable? Sure, and, as good as any other. <laughs> yeah. And truly, you know, it would also be one of those things where your second didn't even need to be a good fighter, right? Your second could be, like you were saying, someone who's very charming, who's mm -hmm. an incredible musician and dancer and well-known by everyone. They could not fight at all because the second, usually, unless things went terribly wrong, mm -hmm. would never have to take arms. They might I see. usually wouldn't even be armed. Uh, so... It's, it's truly what, at least if you're trying to do this honorably, you're looking for someone who can be persuasive on your behalf. Uh, and you might also have some guesses, if you and I know each other well, you might have some guesses as to my, who my second would be. So you might even try to strategize. Mm -hmm. So if, if my second is my best friend who is, you know, easily taken with the ladies, you might send in your charming lady friend first and say, I know this is his favorite color, wear this dress or so yeah, you could exactly. get really, really strategic with this. So now what if somebody asks me to be a second and I'm friends with both people at that point, am I going to lose possibly friendship with the other person if I become the second of one of them? Not at all. On the contrary, again, assuming that we are all honorable gentles and trying to maintain our honor, choosing a second who is a mutual friend is a great move because the odds of getting satisfaction before the duel can ever happen are high. So on the contrary, I might respect you a little more for having chosen a person who I know and like very much, right? So as if, if I'm being chosen as a second by someone who I know well, and they're, they're sort of engaged in this code duello with someone else I know well, I'd say, yes, I can take on that job honorably and help. I'm here to help. I'm an intermediary. Mm -hmm. So assuming that we're all actually just seeking satisfaction for the offense or for the lie given, absolutely great move. What happens that's problematic is when there's one of the two people really just does want to fight or it, it can get really tricky, but the, the sort of ideal is that we are all just truly seeking satisfaction for the lie given. Well, this is really fascinating because it's clear that this is a community event. A hundred percent. And 
I think partly because, uh, you know, being raised in the United States where the individual is supposed to be the highest achievement, to be a completely self-sufficient person, which, you know, that is a lie. (laughs) It is impossible. It's impossible, clearly. We are all interdependent. We are all interdependent. And, but it has given us this kind of completely wrong view of what a duel was, which is two rugged individualists fighting out their differences between each other as though that was some kind of virtue. So it's definitely this cultural and communal event. And I can even see how, if done properly, it could liven up a dull winter when everybody is stuck in the house. (laughs) There's also also a lot of uh, accounts of something like this happening Uh and then those two people becoming the best of friends. Right. Because it all worked out so well that you recognize in this person a sort of kindred spirit. Mm-hmm. Because you you really did achieve it. You achieved satisfaction. It was a misunderstanding. You're great. Let's be friends. You know, it, it it's such a it's so different than I think it's depicted in sort of especially sort of Hollywood and and our mm-hmm. ideas of it. Well, Cha, all of this talk about satisfaction. First of all, puts me in mind of the Rolling Stones and how poor Mick Jagger couldn't get any. (laughs) But there's a real sexual connotation to this. I'm not imagining this, right? Uh, Oh, no, you are not imagining this. Uh, And in fact, there are sexual connotations to just about everything about swordplay. And I think that Shakespeare is a master at pulling out literally every possible connotation of every possible sword jargon and dual jargon. Like truly the amount of, yes, absolutely satisfaction. But also when I was researching this originally, you know, a year ago, uh, the, the word cut in Elizabethan England would have been the word used for C-U-N-T as we use it today. Oh. So, and also would have connections to Cesario, as in Cesarean section, as in he's castrated, mm. he's a eunuch. Mm. So cut, so, and Saviolo, who the dueling code that Shakespeare is talking about is specifically Saviolo, was known for being more about cuts than about thrusts or guards. And so the depth to which any one of these words could mean <laughs> swordplay or sex is deep. It's deep and it's totally worth investigating. <laughs> we can't even talk about it without making sexual puns. That's how <laughs> it's there. It's ripe for the it's picking. Just, it's just right there. So I've been, uh, I've been reading <laughs> as I do. And one of the, the, the things that I've been reading and it's, um, it's this fantastic book, which you may or may not have read. If you haven't, you should homosexuality in Renaissance England by Mm -hmm. Alan Bray. And he does a lot of really wonderful research. And, you know, I I can quibble about some things as as we do as scholars do, because that's our job. But, what really seems to be uncontested 
is that men before like the mid 18th, maybe even like 19th centuries, it was assumed that they would be attracted to women and young men. There really was no definition. There was no identity where somebody would say they're heterosexual or they're homosexual. It was kind of assumed that everybody was more or less bisexual at that point. And knowing that, I feel like that brings a, another whole dimension to dueling and everything else. Because, for instance, you could have a woman who had an interest in a man possibly challenge a young man to a duel over the love of that man and have it be considered, they might have been considered equal footing in that situation if they were both more or less of nobility. Like I, I think our whole ideas of what an honorable duel might be are so wrapped up in our uh, gender and sexual identity biases it's a it's a very flexible structure and i think what happens right is this idea that the people in power write the books mm -hmm. right so we have very few accounts of women dueling we have some uh and most of them are women who are cross-dressed in some way mm. and in savio's book remember published in 1595 in english he has a whole chapter on the nobility of women that is literally just a list of women who have fought as nobly as men. And it is a long list and he goes into it. And he of course ends with Queen Elizabeth and it's a beautiful sort of like, it's the last moment of the whole book and it's beautiful. Um, but the point being is that it's very likely that women dueled, at least I think so from the research that I've done, but we have very few records of it happening. So it becomes a sort of complicated, if you want to be true to history and true to the recordings that we have, if you want to be a little more imaginative, <laughs> like I want to be, you know, as long as you were engaging in the code, mm -hmm. it would surprise me if women did not engage in duels at least some of the time. And so... I know very little about sort of the sexual proclivities of the time, but given what you've just said about the research you've done, I mean, I would love to see that duel. And again, if we're going by the code duello, it would have to be the giving of a lie. So it would have to be that woman saying, you are trying to go after my man. And that man, that young man saying, thou liest, mm -hmm. ye lies. Mm -hmm. And then that woman saying, expect my challenge. Right. So it would still to go by the code have to involve those steps. Mm -hmm. But I don't see why not. Right. I, I'd love to see that duel. Well, and what you're saying about women in male dress is really interesting because in the beliefs at a time, just putting on the clothes of another gender allowed you to take on the traits of that gender which is why nobody batted an eye when 
young men took on the roles of women in Shakespeare's plays, it was assumed that, yes, of course you could do that. All you needed to do was get dressed like a woman, and you would start to feel like a woman. You would start to be a woman. And so if a woman then put on some breeches and a man's doublet and then strapped on a sword, at that point, she is technically a man in almost every way that would have mattered to an Elizabethan. Wow. Okay. This is super cool. Okay. So um, I have sent my most charming second and uh, they failed. It's on. Now what? So in the sort of back and forth of our seconds, part of the failure is going to be me saying, absolutely not. She called me a liar. Unless she takes that back, I'm fighting. I'm not and then taking my second, it back. Exactly. Not taking Our it second. back. She's a dirty Tell liar. <laughs> my cat is beautiful. Um, <laughs> so Our seconds relay that information. Once that's decided, we can't be satisfied without the fight. Mm-hmm. Then we choose, uh, I, I think it's called the field of honor. Mm-hmm. We choose the field of honor, which is where we will fight. Interestingly, talking about it being a community affair, the constables, the, the sort of police, would, te- would designate areas that were good fields of honor where they wouldn't be. And they would specifically name it for the community to say, you know, any like honest person who wants to go for a walk, don't walk through this area because there are no constables on duty. But anyone who wants to use it as a field of honor, we won't be there, right? Because for most of the time that dueling was practiced, it was also illegal, right. which is just interesting. Um, so we would choose our field of honor. We would choose our weapons. We would each bring a doctor. So we'd each have our own doctor and our seconds would come with us. We'd meet on the field of honor at the appointed time with the appointed weapons. And then our seconds would one more time talk to each other to see if there was any chance of satisfaction. Sometimes just seeing each other again, because again, we wouldn't have had contact Mm -hmm. this whole time, might say, you know what? I see Rachel. I see her blade at her hip. I'm not that, I'm not that excited. (laughs) I'm okay. I'm good. I'm satisfied. Uh, Importantly, both parties have to be satisfied. Once the challenge is issued, Mm -hmm. even though I issued the challenge, if I'm satisfied and you're not, we still have to go. Mm -hmm. Uh, So at that point, you could have felt so sort of riled up that you're like, absolutely not. I don't care if she's satisfied. We're fighting. Wow. So that's really a lot of places where you can back out without losing any honor at all. Because at that point, the important thing is that you showed up yeah. Right. You went through the whole thing. You had the honor. And then you're willing to say, eh, yeah, it's a pretty cat. Yeah. And it's like, even that, even saying this person showed up, I respect them a little more for that. Mm-hmm. I'll take this as like an affront that happened because life happens and we're all fallible humans. And let's let bygones be bygones. Right. The other thing to remember is that when, when you are on, at the field of honor and your seconds have met, even if you do say, we're not satisfied, we're fighting, 
each bout of the duel. And, and, you know, there's different things that I've read that have said, like, there are specific numbers of bouts or they're specific, you know, to first blood. Yes, that existed to a certain extent, but what it would usually be would be you'd sort of come to the center, there would be a center marked, and you'd fight a little bit. And if anything happened, if I so much as like tapped you on the arm with the flat of my blade, we break. And both our doctors inspect us and check to make sure that there's, you know, wounds, what's going on. At that moment, our seconds will come to us, say, are you satisfied? We can say yes or no, and they come back to each other. So at every single moment, there continue to be opportunities to have it not go any further. Wow. It's much more civilized than our culture is. But, you know, maybe it had to be. It's dangerous, especially, yeah. you know, even, even though duels were not often fought to the death, many duels resulted in death because we don't have antibiotics. We don't. So you could get a tiny cut on the arm and if it got infected, you know, cause you're also, you might roll around mm-hmm. during this fight. You might have a cloak that has dust on it mm-hmm. and it gets sprayed at you. So a minor wound could get infected and you could die from it. And so even if it's not this, you know, dramatic to the death moment, it is a life or death situation. So I, I, I do think it had to be very civil and very specific to, to get to the point where you would draw blood. It has to be a very big moment of dishonor that you feel like you have to stand up for yourself, which is why what I find hilarious to no end in Twelfth Night is that it really uses the fact that there are 101 steps <laughs> that have to be sort of torn apart for it to even get to two people facing each other with swords. Which it with, it explains all the Fabian and Toby going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and brings up an interesting point of why Fabian exists at all. Mm-hmm. Because I if Festy as a second seems unreliable. <laughs> you think? <laughs> okay, so let's say uh, I I am not satisfied. You insulted my cat. And we go for a round. So mm-hmm. is there sort of an accepted amount of intensity that gets more and more intense as these rounds go on? Would you expect to see a more and more serious fighting as the rounds progressed? Or would you expect things to de-escalate? Or does it just, it just varies depending on the individuals? It varies, but, but, more often than not, you'd see it de-escalate because a lot of gentle people, although they had done sport fencing or had studied with Saviolo in his school or Benetti before Saviolo or had, you know, very few, some people have, you know, been on a battlefield, certainly, but, but very few have actually been sort of actually injured in a duel. 
you would not, very few people were sort of regular duelists. And so if someone besmirched your honor and it got to a point where, where you're actually fighting, the moment you get cut or the moment you cut someone else, a lot of reality sort of hits you in the face immediately. And if you've ever, you know, something that when you think about, you know, a kitchen knife, mm-hmm. right? Something that's actually sharp in your life, but is mundane. Mm-hmm. You think about that coming at your face, you get, you sober up pretty quick. So the, the idea of getting to actual violence, especially if both people are trained in fencing, you know, it, a lot of conversation in the stage combat community too is about how fun it is to fight with people. And so you imagine, at least I do, that if we were both, you know, good swordswomen and we like fought about and sort of either you trapped me or I trapped you, or we got one little cut in, we might sort of like laugh and, and be like, that was, you know, you're good. (laughs) And be like, I'm satisfied. That was, I'm good. A, I've been cut. I don't need any more of that. And B, you're good at this. I'm good at this. Let's go have a beer and be friends again, you mm-hmm. know? Um, so, so usually it would de-escalate. I think the reality of the violence would make it sort of end very quickly. Because again, you're coming to it in cold blood days, if not weeks mm-hmm. after the initial insult the the need to hurt one another is low but again it depends on personality if if you're the type of personality who's out for blood then you're out for blood and you know sometimes these things can run years back in terms of resentment there there can be you know real injury behind whatever superficial reason there is for the duel at that particular moment, you know, e- even in normal relationships, we're sometimes arguing about something completely different than who left a wet towel on the bed. You know, it it's usually you're actually arguing about something else. So I think very few of us, certainly any of us who's grown up in a city, it's really hard for us to imagine an environment where we can't get away from people that drive us crazy, you know, unless they're a relative or a friend or something like that, or, you know, you're stuck at a job. I recognize all that. But when you're in a big city, if you leave that job or break up with that person or move out and get on your own, you can move to the other side of town, have a whole new circle of friends a lot of the time and never, ever see them. And in the days before Facebook or Twitter, like you would just never see them Again, you wouldn't see their face. You wouldn't have to know what they thought, any of that. But back then, you know, there just weren't that many people. You could not get away from somebody. It would be difficult if you were in the same social set to completely get out of their influence. So let's say, uh, you know, whatever our beef is, it goes back decades. And I'm just not satisfied until I've drawn blood. And I draw blood, and it turns septic, and you die. At that point, I'm in trouble, right? Yes and no. So you could be because dueling is technically illegal. So if the constable has it out for you, they could put you in jail just for dueling at all. 
And one of the things that you agree to when you enter into the duel is that if you do kill the other person or if their death can be tied back to this duel by any you know logical means. Mm-hmm. So if I die within days from that particular injury, yes, it's obvious it came from this duel. You are now responsible financially for my entire family. Oh, wow. <laughs> Damn. So that's also part of the reason why you're like, you're probably going to be satisfied earlier. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't need that. I don't need that. Uh, but again, because it's, it's about honor, right? right? So you would not leave my family without, particularly when it's men or the head of the household, you would not leave my family without that, even though we had our disagreements. Because that right? wouldn't be honorable. Yeah. Because that wouldn't yeah. be. Oh, that's fascinating. That's, that's part of the deal. <laughs> wow. Whereas on the other yeah. hand, if I go, eh, all right, let's go have a drink, then everybody's relieved. And at that point, we can just go on with our lives and possibly I ask you to be a second at my next duel. And that's also that's also why, you know, a lot of the code duello is designed, if you think about the opening of Romeo and Juliet mm-hmm. and, and the idea of a street brawl and a family feud that goes back generations. So much of the Code Duello was designed again by Italians who were experiencing <laughs> that exact thing yes. to avoid that thing. But when you get to England, especially the lower classes, a lot of the lower classes are like just brawl at the tavern so you don't have to deal with all of that. Right. So it really does become if it is about standing up for your honor, you do it this way. If it's about hurting this person, don't do a duel. Fight them in the tavern mm-hmm. because then you don't have that responsibility. You Now, you might be seen as a not honorable person if you fight them in the tavern, but you've also avoided all of this nonsense. Got it. You know? Got it. So this is a very specific outlet for tensions, of a very yeah. specific kind of tension and dealing with incredible peer pressure among an incredibly small and competitive group of people where losing your honor was the real danger, M- much more of a risk actually than dying from a duel. Yep. Because losing your honor meant losing status, meant possibly losing lands, um, all kinds of things. Uh, Favor is a serious business in an Elizabethan court. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've gone through all of this. And now, what is our social standing in the community? We've provided this kind of entertainment uh, where... We made it through, and maybe this is the first time you or I have ever dueled. How does our standing in the community go after this? Are we appreciated for having resolved a conflict the appropriate way, or are we looked more at like, oh, you know, watch out for them. They dueled once, you know, they're kind of hot-tempered. Definitely wouldn't be seen as hot-tempered if we went through all the rules as written, right? If we went through every moment, I think what's fun about this stuff is that because duels actually didn't happen that often, when they did, it would be the talk of the town. And so you might have 
different town gossips saying different things. Well, like actually Cha's, you know, little Punto Reverso came out of nowhere and (laughs) Rachel wasn't expecting it. And that wasn't very cool. Right. And like, well, actually, but Rachel, like, you know, looked so there could absolutely be gossip on either side of what kinds of fighters we are. Did we, you know, were we honorable the whole time or was there some like back dealing happening? But for the most part, if we did it by the book, as, as you know, Mercutio says, mm-hmm. um, we'd be seen as honorable people who went about it the right way. Uh, I do think once you get sort of past Elizabethan into Jacobean and beyond, dueling does go out of favor and becomes more truly illegal. Mm-hmm. And so people who are doing it are seen as sort of stuck in the past mm-hmm. and it's it's barbaric mm-hmm. and but in still in Shakespeare's time, if you're doing it the right way, it's like, oh yeah, they resolved their conflict. Mm-hmm. Like they resolved it, good on them. If you did well in the fight, you might be seen as someone who you don't mess with. You don't, you know, don't give the lie to that person because they will best you. Uh, but it would definitely not besmirch your honor had you done it the right way. Now, let's say that you and I were old friends and we're kind of new to court and nobody's really paying us any attention. We're not getting laid, you know, (laughs) we're not getting any favors from anybody. Might we cook something up like this just to... (laughs) I don't see why not. I mean, so much, what I love about this is that so much of it at least the way I go about it, and probably this whole podcast has been speculation mm-hmm. based on what we do know. Uh, but I love speculation and I love imagination, especially when we're talking about theatrical spaces and how to use this information in theatrical spaces. Mm-hmm. Is like, why not? Especially looking at Twelfth Night and looking at how much of the quote unquote duel, because can it even be called that, between Aggie Cheek and Cesario is completely contrived by Toby. Yes, exactly. You know, so, so sure, sure. I would totally buy a story of me and you sort of feigning a duel. Now, granted, if anyone found out about that, it would, it would it's a huge risk. Mm, uh, yeah. Because that would look as incredibly because that's a lie right there that's very false yeah yeah that's fascinating and so at that point the offense becomes being false rather than breaking the law by having the duel and and so it seems less likely (laughs) that you and I would take that risk we might find another way to bring attention to ourselves. Maybe we form a band or (laughs) dance particularly well. (laughs) Well, and dancing particularly well, you know, to, to go a little full circle from the earlier conversation about stage combat and dance. I think one of the things that I find fascinating in in 12th night is that Aggie cheek does, we do get a little bit that Aggie cheek is not a good dancer Mm -hmm. and is like not coordinated and so something that would have happened, or at least in, in my reading, I've, I've come to understand this, is that if you were a good dancer at court, mm. you might actually get away with 
not having to duel people because it, it, they were connected. There was an understanding that if you were a good dancer, you were likely a good fighter or at least coordinated with a blade. So in some ways, yeah, I think that if you wow. and I showed ourselves to be fantastic dancers at court, we, we wouldn't have to show our skill with a sword necessarily. And could we do like a sword fighting exhibition that was clearly that just to show off? I mean, that's the, that's the thing. So many, especially the actors, you know, in Shakespeare's time were, were trained fencers. I mean, right. fencing as a sport was huge. And whether you were trained by the masters of the defense, masters of defense, which were the London masters, mm-hmm. or you were trained by Saviola or Benetti, the Italian masters, you know, these fencing schools were a huge deal among the aristocracy. So just being able to wield a blade, mm. you know, and, and show off a little fencing bout would absolutely be seen as, you know, impressive and would put you at a certain class level and would put you, you know, you afforded the classes taught by such and such fencing master. Uh, and there would be discussions constantly of who, you know, who taught who and who's on whose side and, you know, what pedagogy of fencing do you ascribe to? I think it's Burbage was a huge uh, master of defense guy, so hated the Italians. <laughs> and in, in one, one tidbit that I love, another sort of scholar of this stuff, her name is Hannah Roccasano, she's fantastic and a fighter as well, uh, told me that in Henslow's diary of the, like, you know, Henslow's actors, there's a list of props that they had backstage that included 17 foils. Wow. So, you know, that amount of foils, most of the actors, even if they weren't necessarily actually trained by any masters, probably were picking things up from each other, you know, in their rehearsals. Right. Right. So Because people with swords and sticks can't help themselves. Of course not. <laughs> so with all these other ways to prove your worth in a court using the same skills, I begin to understand why duels were so rare. Mm-hmm. It really was an option of last resort. There were just lots of other ways to do this. Now, would it have implied if you were good at dancing and you were good at swordspersonship that you were good in bed too? So this is an, again, a speculative point, but yes. And I think, I think I say yes with zero doubt in my voice, largely because of Shakespeare, actually. The amount of times that the sword is used as a phallus, yes. right? Or, or described as how one uses their sword or like how, how long has it been since you've used your sword, right? That is obviously sexual innuendo, even to a novice reader today, Absolutely, a hundred percent. There would be innuendo and speculation around someone who was particularly good with their sword, right, or a particularly good dancer, and, just like we do today. Honestly, and it does. Honestly, it does make sense. People who are at home and comfortable with their bodies, and certainly willing to exercise their bodies and think about what their bodies can do is I might have an edge in a situation that's all about their bodies. It just kind of seems kind of logical. 
So this next point, it, you know, if you are particularly uncomfortable with sexual topics, I, I suggest that you turn the podcast off. But okay, everybody else still here? So dildos, mm. <laughs> definitely not unknown in Elizabethan times. It would have been very odd if they had existed since Mesopotamia and then suddenly in the Neolithic and then suddenly disappeared during an Elizabethan court. It was kind of understood that a fake phallus was really as good as a real one in terms of getting the job done for, for anything other than producing heirs. And mm -hmm. so I, I can see that extending to swords as well, that swords could easily be seen as a type of phallus. And the preoccupation of the Elizabethan mind in having a functioning phallus cannot be overstated. It had to do with the right to rule, with the right to govern your own affairs, with people's perception of you as a rational human being. And again, this is why many women chose to dress as men, just because they didn't want men telling them what to do all the time. And so when I'm constantly reading through Shakespeare all these sword puns, you know, that are inevitably dick jokes. Mm -hmm. How much of that, like preoccupation with weapons as a phallic substitute, do you feel like continues to bleed over into our culture? Because to me, it seems like it's everywhere. You know, and I'm not trying to get into a gun debate here. But back when gun debates were kind of more common on the internet, I had a friend who wrote a, a script for me that changed every time somebody typed gun into a public forum, that it turned it into penis. <laughs> <laughs> and it uh, always, right always made sense. Every single time. And when you start reading Shakespeare this way, it it kind of gives you the impression that really people just were thinking about who had a functioning phallus and who didn't. And so when you look at that, and when you look at the extreme amount of this courtship around having a duel, do you feel like this reflects in some ways the courtship that people would have as a preamble to sex or to marriage? It almost sounds like a similar process to me. Um, like when, like I'm thinking specifically right now, because I'm certainly not an expert on this and I don't know how much of this you've studied, but I can't help but see some similarities. So we have Orsino trying to get Olivia Mm -hmm. and and now they're not allowed to see each other, and he mm -hmm. has to keep picking these seconds, and Viola is his third second, and he's still not getting any satisfaction, and he probably never will. 
so how does that, I can't help but feel like it impugns his honor, right? I think, I think the parallels are there and are important. And I think the sort of, I, I think it's so important to look back on history, both with out the lens of now and with the lens of now. Because I think looking back, you can see the homoeroticism, even if they didn't see it at the time of the whole dueling code, of the courtship, calling it a courtship. And so when you're looking at a specific play and you're seeing parallels between the courtship that is a duel and the courtship that's happening between Orsino and Olivia, absolutely that's there. I see it there. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it tells you something about, you know, it both maybe undermines Orsino, but also shows how honorable Orsino Mm -hmm. is, right? That he's not engaging in a tavern brawl, quote unquote, of this relationship. He's seeking her in all the right ways. Maybe, you know, we could argue that he's, we talked about this a little bit in the boundary one. If you want more, go to that one. (laughs) But maybe he's pushing a little far past her boundaries because she has said no, but he's not just showing up at her home. You know, Mm -hmm. he's still doing it right by the book, by the code. So I do think there's a, a parallel to be looked at there. And Again, it's why I, I find it so important that the more that you know about, and this is true of any Shakespeare, the more that you know about the language you're saying, absolutely, the more deep your production is. So when you're talking about all these dueling codes and the language is there in this play, mm-hmm. doing a little bit of research into what that actually meant will open up things like, what is the parallel in the relationship between... Olivia Norsino, because there is one. Let's play with that. Let's unravel that. You know, I think it offers so much more. Yes. And it's a contentious relationship. It is a kind of a duel. And to be clear, I think there's plenty of homoerotic imagery in Twelfth Night and throughout Shakespeare. But that's different than saying that somebody would have identified as somebody who was exclusively attracted to one gender or another. So, um, but yeah, there's obviously lots of admiration for Cesario, Viola, and definite ambiguity in terms of sexuality. And we have very few records of women and women having sex together and being in love and, you know, that kind of lesbian identity that we're much more familiar with now. But the fact that there's nothing written about it obviously doesn't mean it wasn't happening because human beings are human beings. And to me, the fact that nothing was written about it means that nobody cared, basically. It couldn't result in in airs, there wasn't the concern of women wasting their sexual energies. Women were assumed to have unlimited sexual energy, much unlike our own culture. And, you know, if you look at this biologically, it, it, it's just not difficult to understand that women don't need an erection in order to enjoy sex. Uh, Men often do, and they can only sustain that for a limited amount of time. 
And as they aged, it became increasingly difficult, which is not something that our culture deals with anymore. And Mm -hmm. I think honestly has changed the power dynamic, quite frankly, to shift towards older and older males who still have skin in the game, like literally. Well, and and even the fact that we're talking about sort of sexual virility as a marker of power, right, is um, is so much a part of what sword play is right it and how it's used in shakespeare as an as a stand and a substitute for sexual virility mm-hmm. of how good you are with your sword and you know when was the last time you unsheathed your sword and all, i mean everything about it is this idea that sexual virility is directly linked to power mm-hmm. and and that i think again can be used to such comedic brilliance when you're literally talking about, you know, A, this sort of flush-cheeked knight yes. <laughs> versus a woman in drag, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like the phallus v. phallus part of this duel is hilarious. It's very true, <laughs> especially... Sort of non-existent. And, and even because even the characters involved believe that Cesario is a eunuch and has no phallus. So the fact that Toby is doing all this, it's clear trolling on his part. Full trolling. Toby Mm -hmm. is such a troll. He really is. And to think about the fact that Shakespeare never shows sex on stage. He never shows or really rarely shows actual violence on stage. Mm -hmm. This is, I think, you know, Romeo and Juliet, is an exception, but even so, Mercutio dies off stage. Uh, even Paris dies off stage. The only people who die on stage are the ones who drink poison, which is, you know, not not what we would think of as a violent death. Certainly with swordplay. So I feel like this sword fight it gives Shakespeare a chance to show a duel on stage, mm-hmm. and really shows it as the comedy that it is. Well, I think for me, I love putting this, again, quote unquote, duel, because they never actually fight. Right. Sebastian fights Aggie Chief. Oh, that's, that's right. That's right. That's a brawl. That's not a duel. Got it. Um, but looking at Cesario and Aggie Cheek's fight alongside a fight like Hamlet Laertes, mm. which is a, a dramatic depiction of what this can look like mm-hmm. right and and the whole court is watching and and then everybody dies yes uh spoiler alert hamlet um but even looking at it compared to you know henry the fourth where it's a battlefield mm-hmm. fight between two very honorable leaders you know of of a country and of a rebellion uh it's it's looking at the comedy of what's possible when two people may or may not fight, it, I, you know, it, to me, it's just, it's very obvious to me that Shakespeare, you know, one of the things uh, Jared Kirby said to me when we talked about this on the phone a while back was he was like, my greatest regret in doing all this research is that I never found out whether or not Shakespeare and Saviolo had a beer. Mm. Because there's a very good chance that if Shakespeare didn't train himself 
in swordplay. He at least was in the circles and maybe had a beer with Saviolo uh, because his knowledge of it and the way he's able to depict it in all these different scenarios in such different ways is masterful. And so to me, this fight is just a mastery of swordplay comedy. It just is. It's, it, you know, it's brilliant. And and I agree, especially after having you explain quite a bit of it to me. And I want to reassure our readers that we're going to go through a line by line analysis of those scenes in those scene summaries. So just seek those out when they show up. I'm honestly not sure which will show up first, this or those, but uh, please be patient with me, either one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, and if, you know, anyone who's done writing or knows a writer knows when they want information that we'll go to almost any lengths to get it. We You get pretty obsessed. And now, you know, we have the luxury of Google and the world's knowledge at our fingertips. But in Shakespeare's time, you would have had to go find a physical copy of the book or the, or the human being and talk to them. And that person would have expected and welcomed that kind of discussion. It would not have been unusual at all. They traveled in the same circles. I think that, you know, clearly he was influenced by it. And I I think we can indulge in a little fantasy where they have a a mug together somewhere, or maybe even a little a little lesson. I think, you know, there's been so much Shakespeare fiction put out there mm-hmm. that I would love to see that scene. (laughs) Well, especially because, you know, one of the things that I find fascinating is the likelihood that Saviolo's school and, you know, Blackfriar, the the sort of Blackfriar's Mm -hmm. area, which is also where Shakespeare's plays were performed in the winters, Mm -hmm. right? If they weren't at the Globe, it's like a four block radius. Oh, good grief. Of course they know each other. Of course (laughs) course they they did. Of course they went to the same pubs. Yeah. Like they had to. It's a four block radius. Yeah. (laughs) There's just, there isn't that much going on. And, you know, they're in a, a similar, both admired and disreputable field. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, there, there's different strata of society, right? There's the ones we think of in terms of class and money, but there's also professional ones. And so, you know, today you find doctors hanging out with other doctors and lawyers, uh, administrators, people who have to worry about their reputation in the public sphere. You see famous actors just hanging out with other famous actors and you know you see the rest of us making our own little communities of those who will welcome us and it's really hard to imagine that that down there with all the sex workers and the fencing school and the theater folk and uh, the the questionable inns and taverns where some of Shakespeare's company had prostitutes and you know, owned the inns and had a nice little tidy side income. And how important, I I apologize, listeners, I'm going off on one of my crazy tangents, but (laughs) just thinking about you need to defend yourself no matter where you are 
in a society where the police aren't in that part of town, the constables aren't there, and they had a different function anyway than what we think of as cops today. And so having a famous dueling school, swords school, in your neighborhood and having your actors good with those swords could be a point of real defense for you. You know, they collected a lot of money in those tills, a lot of cash changing hands, and knowing how to defend yourself was not just something to show off. It was something that you needed to survive. So that, that makes a great deal of sense. Also, you know, something that we didn't get into here, but we might get into in, in the line by line Mm -hmm. lookout audience um, is this question of would Cesario have had a sword on his hip Mm -hmm. the whole time? Would he have only worn it? for the duel, because the fact is at this time, there is a certain class of person who is wearing a sword at their hip at all times. Yes. Like the way we would wear a wristwatch. So you're walking around in a neighborhood where everyone has a deadly weapon on them as a point of fashion. (laughs) We're not everyone, but people of a certain class. Uh, You know, how how you interact with one another on the street is going to look a little different. Yes. And so, you know, thinking about just uh, self-defense mm-hmm. as an idea in this time is, is going to look different because of, of the norms of a, of a sword on your hip, you know? There's one little topic that I want to get into. That, so when we think of sword fighting now, we think of basically a, a two-handed broadsword a lot of the time, and that somebody would just be holding a sword. But the fact is that often people would have maybe a dagger or something else in the other hand, in their non-dominant hand. How how often do you think that was? Do you think it was fairly common for people to be dual-wielding? As often as possible, to the point where, you know, as stage combatants, when we talk about it, a lot of times we'll talk about rapier and companion, Mm -hmm. because the idea is anything in your offhand is a weapon. So it might be rapier and lantern, rapier and tankard, rapier and, and you might have a buckler, which is a small shield, Mm -hmm. Uh, very small, would really just cover your fist, but could be very useful. Mm -hmm. You might have a dagger and usually your dagger would be hidden. Uh, It would you'd probably keep it on your back so that if you were wearing a long cloak, people wouldn't know you had one. Mm -hmm. You would also absolutely use your cloak. Rapier Mm -hmm. and cloak is a very classic uh, companion. So a hundred percent, even, you know, when I choreograph fights, I love to do sort of environmental fighting. So even if I don't have an offhand weapon, if there's something on the stage that I could pick up and use, I want to use it as a choreographer, right? So if it's rapier and rock, it's rapier mm-hmm. and rock. But having an offhand weapon, you know, there's also a, a style called case of rapiers. Uh, and it's, it's literally called that because if you had, if you were holding a case of rapiers, you would have more than one. So that's two rapiers, which is a, a wild wow. style and gets very dangerous, <laughs> very fast. Uh, but yes, an offhand weapon would be used as often as you could. If you had access to an offhand weapon, you were using it. 
So grabbing that wine bottle, cracking it on the side and holding it in your other hand, you suddenly become twice as scary as you were with just the rapier in your hand. All right. Well, this has been just as much fun as I thought it would be. (laughs) Do you have anything else that, uh, that you want to tell us that I didn't ask you about? Oh gosh, a million and one things. (laughs) I I will just say that if anyone listening or Rachel, you yourself wants to nerd out about swords and sword play, especially in Shakespeare's time, but anytime, I also want to do that. Let's do more of it. Fascinating. Uh, (laughs) I think the more we talk about it, the it's just, it's so fun. It's so full. And I think it helps us as theater makers. So Let's talk about it. Well, that sounds like an invitation to start a whole second podcast. Let's do it. Okay. <laughs> um, because we're connected on Facebook, I see you promoting a lot of these this women's performing group. Would you yeah. please tell everyone about them? I haven't seen any of their performances, but I'm so loving the write-ups of their individual characters, and I definitely want to watch it. Yes. So uh, I am a very proud, uh, an honored member of the Vixens on Guard. And the Vixens on Guard is an all-femme, all-female Shakespeare fight troupe. And mostly what we do is abridged versions, comedic abridged versions of Shakespeare plays with a focus on the combat. Uh, And it's so much fun and so silly and lovely. And it's you know, one of the uh, artistic directors of the company, Lisa Kapitsky, is also a scholar in this sort of historical uh, stage combat. So she's been a huge uh, mentor for me in this stuff. And I think just getting a chance to be a woman spouting Shakespeare and swinging swords uh, makes all this stuff that much more fun and interesting. So if it's something that interests you, check us out, Vixens on Guard. We are on what we call the Book of Faith. So on <laughs> Facebook, uh, Vixens on Guard. Also at Vixens on Guard on Instagram. It's a great it's a great group of women. And who is your character? My character is Brizos Isleña. And Brizo is a Spanish pirate uh, who I love. Uh, and she's, you know, she's just a, a scoundrel and a lovable human. And if you go to the Vixens on Guard uh, Facebook or Instagram, you can see what Rachel's talking about. All the backstories of each of us are on there in various posts. So you can read my whole backstory. And they're so, and they're so well written and just sweet and funny and very entertaining. So I recommend that highly. All right, Sean, my dear, thank you so much. And thank Thank you for sharing your your hard-won scholarship and wisdom with us and wit. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Until next time.